So Step's main role is to be that one place where you've got all of your different protocols, all your different integrations and so on. And it's all, it just tells you, you know, what, what's happening with your portfolio. And your portfolio could be NFTs, it could be staking, it could be yield farms, it could be like claiming rewards from a lending farm, it could be all of this crazy stuff. It could be even getting transaction information for, like we have a lot of people asking about like, oh, tax season, right? And they need to know like all of the history of their wallet. And if you look at anyone's wallet, it's just a total mess, <laughs> at least uh, if you go and look at it on a block explorer. Like how are you trying to remember what you did three months ago? It's pretty hard. So, so Step's job is to make all of that a lot easier for end users and just put everything in one place. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon, I'm your host, and today we're talking about Solana, we're talking about DeFi with the stepfather, co-founder of Step Finance, George Harap. Thank you so much for joining today, George. How you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, just keeping on, on, on top of everything crazy that's been happening the last few weeks in crypto. Dude, keeping on top of everything is a challenge. I mean, I actually was just reflecting on this today. So, I mean, you, I know you're active on Twitter, I'm active on Twitter myself too, and I took I took about 24 to maybe 36 hours just kind of off Twitter, and I felt like I had missed everything. Is keeping up with everything in crypto a challenge for you? I think it's a full-time job for sure. I'm pretty much the same. Like I was, I think I was out at a, at a friend's birthday party the other day for like six hours, and I come back, and it's like some big things happen. Everyone's talking about it. I'm like, oh, okay, I need to spend the next 15 minutes like catching up on everything. I don't think there is a solution to it. It's just that... Uh, yeah, that's kind of where all the discussion of everything happens in crypto. It used to be forums back in the early days, but uh, nah, now everything's Twitter for sure. We were talking before this pause started. I said I was about to get out of here, out of town later today after this recording. I'm going to be out of cell service on a camping trip for five straight days. And this will be the longest that I've been off of cell service in quite a while. But specifically since I got into crypto, I mean, I might come back and who knows if Bitcoin will still be up and running. I mean, we'll find out. You need to multiply like a human days by like 100 and, and to get crypto days. And that's that's the correct time period. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to set some buy orders just in case you never know if Ethereum wicks down to 500 while I'm gone. <laughs> that's it. You mentioned just now, you know, forums, like back in the early days. Now, I'd love for you to walk us through for people who aren't familiar with your journey, you know, how you got into crypto originally and how that led you to where you are today um, in the DeFi ecosystem, working on working in Solana. And because you have a really interesting journey, right? I think it's 11 years in crypto. I mean, that is that is a heck of a ride. And, and you saw some things before a lot of people got onboarded, you know, with the NFT NFT craze that's gone for the last year and before DeFi came around. So please walk us through that. 
on Twitter, my title is stepfather, but maybe it should be like grandfather of crypto because it kind of feels like that with the with the length of time. Like it was back then, it was Bitcoin. That that's all it was, right? Like I would say I got into crypto eleven years ago, but there was like one website on the internet where you would talk about things, um, and there was only maybe like three hundred people on it. It was a bunch of sort of computer nerds that were uh, mainly. The discussion was very philosophical, though. So I think that was an important distinction to where it's very different to today is uh, people got into, I, I would say, Bitcoin back then from the philosophical standpoint of like sound money and, you know, all the talking points that the Bitcoiners still talk about today, literally exactly the same speech. Yeah, you know, a lot of that, you know, back then. And yeah, there was there was one exchange, really, empty gox, uh, people might have heard of. That was just what it was. So, you know, I, I essentially got into it to to do mining. I used to buy computer parts off eBay and I used to, in my room as a student, just sort of build uh, computers to, to do Bitcoin mining. And I didn't know anything about finance. I taught myself everything through just learning about like how Bitcoin worked really. Yeah, through that, I was able to build up some money. I uh, took out some loans from some banks, which I couldn't afford, but I put it all on on mining hardware. And uh, I was one of the, in the first batches of FPGAs and ASICs. It was a crazy time back then. It was a very wild west, very different vibe. And I guess through through that journey, like I guess for the first three years, I was mining and and that was really the core focus. And I was doing a little bit of trading, but there wasn't too many platforms to do that on. In 2014, I got together with uh, with a friend of mine and, and we got on a plane to Hong Kong to, to start a crypto remittance business. And we were the first in the world to do that. Um, and back then, like crypto remittances was all the rage. Like people were thinking, oh, you know, crypto is going to be used as a payment rails and it's going to be a global money. And, you know, it's better than fiat and banks and blah, blah, blah. You don't hear too much about that narrative these days. But back then it was really big. I guess in context, there was like, you know, five exchanges back then. It was like it grown a little bit in 2014. That was sort of the first business, six years, done the whole sort of ups and downs of a startup through that. Essentially, well, when that came to an end in uh, in 2020, when COVID hit and, you know, we had to, to close down uh, a lot of the business because of because uh, all of our customers had to close you know, their shops as well, I sort of pivoted to uh, to looking at DeFi and I was just sort of working on it myself just in my spare time. I guess through that led to the journey to get to, to where we are today in STEP, uh, which we started at the at the start of 2021 with a couple of buddies of mine from from way back, you know, back when I started 10 years ago. So, uh, so we got together and we thought, you know, what was a missing piece of the puzzle in DeFi? And, you know, Solana was just sort of getting started then. We initially started in a hackathon. We put together, it was like a DCA contract, you know, it's a place where you could put, put some money in and it buys some coins over some time period. But through that, we learned that really what's what's lacking in these DeFi things is being able to, there's all these protocols, but being able to just see all of your stuff in one place. Like I don't want 20 tabs open to find out where my money is. I just want to have like one website, which just tells me everything. So that's what Step is. That That's what it evolved into. And, and that's sort of really where we've grown it to today. Uh, you know, a team of about 15 and... Uh, yeah, you know, we've been going strong and um, yeah, it's been it's been great. But uh, yeah, I guess the journey, the ups and downs along the way, there's been a lot of that. I've made money and lost money three times in crypto. Uh, I've lost uh, thousands of Bitcoin here and there in, in different things. Back in the early days, there's Ponzi schemes and like forum things and uh, all sorts of different stuff. But hey, it's all good. You dust yourself off, you get back on the horse and off you go. Yeah, I... I... That's a really interesting story, and I definitely want to dive into both the remittance business and step finance. But before that, a question I have for you is, what played out 
as you thought it would? And what things happened differently from those early days? I mean, you mentioned that a lot of the talk around crypto as this better than fiat simply payment system has shifted slightly. You know, today the conversation seems to really be about these decentralized applications and what kind of what kind of products can give people utility? I mean, NFTs, so very different narratives going on. But yeah, what really strikes you as different than how you were originally seeing things back back in the early forum days? I guess that maybe I alluded to to the beginning, but I think the philosophy is important. Like often people would come not for like, oh, I heard you can make money on this thing. It's like, oh, this is sort of aligns with my philosophy on like what money should be. And I think that's a change that we see to today. And it's it's maybe a natural thing, to be honest. Like, I often think about this, like, could it have been different? Like, should we be onboarding people and talking about the philosophy behind crypto before, you know, we tell them that, yeah, look, there's this different things you can invest in and blah, blah, blah. I think it's just natural, right? The the ecosystem sort of grows beyond the, you know, the the 300 or so people that are, are very sort of ideologically aligned with, uh, with why they want to get into crypto. And it just sort of becomes a thing where, yeah, you have people offering different services and they tell you about, like, uh, in, in the case of DeFi, DeFi is building a financial system, whereas in the case of Bitcoin, it's more sort of analogous to, say, gold, where it's a store of value. So these are different things. And then, of course, you have NFTs and, like, is it art? Is it not? I guess, yeah, there's there's a lot of different reasons that people join crypto these days. And that wasn't really the case. There was really like one entry, I think, back in the day. And I think some of the narratives, like the philosophy is one, the use of crypto as a payment mechanism was certainly really big for like five years. Really, like the first five years of Bitcoin's life, it, it was always about that. People would get really excited with like some random company accepts accept Bitcoin for payments and like, this is the future, everyone's going to do this. Or, you know, you can you can use Bitcoin in some, you know, random country. That didn't really play out. And I think like suddenly like we, we can talk about it on, on the remittance world, but yeah, there's a couple of reasons for that. The longer crypto exists, the longer all of us immerse ourselves in whether it's the metaverse or whether it's doing all of our finances online on a, on a wallet, whether it's getting loans in a DeFi app versus instead of a bank, like we we get so immersed in this thing now that there's probably A, there's no going back and B, it's okay to build businesses that entirely rely on crypto. Whereas like 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Like you had to maybe have some bridge to the real world somewhere, have some fiat you know, outlets, you know, have some sort of some sort of connection there to the real world. Maybe maybe you have to dumb down the application to appeal to, you know, a, a wider audience or something like that. Whereas now I think you can keep the bar, you know, to sort of crypto savvy people. And before, like the audience for that was like 50 people, but now it's like 50 million people. So uh, so it's a viable business model. Yeah, no, really interesting how that shift has happened. I also feel like with some of my my friends during during the pandemic, I live with a bunch of friends and some of them weren't crypto native to start with, right? We had a lot of nights around the living room fireplace and just you know sitting on the porch because we couldn't go anywhere talking about crypto. And we started at this really conceptual level. And then once they got in, it really changed to, all right, what project should I buy into? What's hot right now? And so it kind of makes sense that in those early days, the conceptual people were ideating, people were thinking through these big problems. And now, since a lot of people do understand it, you skip, kind of skip some chapters and you jump straight to, hey, buy this NFT project, 
you know, something like that. But I think that this podcast is also a way to still hit on some of the concepts, the themes, the important aspects of crypto. So that's really one of my goals, to be honest with you. And uh, I appreciate you sharing your story and, and how you think through things too. I also agree that we're definitely past the point where we can't go back. I mean, just today, Andreessen Horowitz announced a, another $4.5 billion in crypto funding for, you know, the foreseeable future. So the amount of funding we're seeing coming into this space is crazy. And that like that fund alone is going to probably spur innovation from how many, how many companies over the next five years? I mean, hundreds probably. So yeah, the, the innovation is, is still going to be flowing in. You talk about differences between in the past and now too. And I want to draw on some differences that I feel like I'm seeing between the U.S. market and maybe the international one and how that might tie to your history with crypto remittance. So remittance has to deal with sending money to people around the world, right? Like basically Western Union, but crypto. Am I, am I right in saying that? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that that narrative has changed slightly because a lot of the innovation happens in the U.S. where that kind of use case just isn't top of mind for us because we have things like Venmo and Cash App and Zelle that connects with your bank account. Sending money isn't too much of a problem for U.S. people, but it's a problem for people in a lot of countries around the world. And But the U.S. is, and, and also tell me if I'm thinking about this wrong too, the U.S. is where I feel like I see a lot of the innovation coming out from the the dApps and the NFT projects, whereas international, I still do see focuses on the payment side of things. Do you think that's why we're seeing a little bit of the shift away from crypto as payment to maybe crypto more as an application? Okay, so a couple of things there to unpack. I think firstly, I would say that the US historically in, in the payment space has lagged behind for like decades. You know, I was sending people payments over Facebook like 12 years ago. And the US still had ACH transfers, which took a day to, to actually clear. And yes, we have like, you know, apps now, but but they're all domestic payments, right? They're, they're within the US. So when we're talking about remittances, it's generally different countries. There's different countries, there's different currencies involved. So the, the global remittance market, it's somewhere in the region of like $700 billion. That's the official number. But really, the actual number is like two times larger than that on the unofficial sort of market. But but that's how money moves around the world, right? So, you know, it would be, say, immigrants in one country sending money back home to their family. That's the, the classic traditional use case. You've got big countries that have a very large percentage of their GDP that come from remittances. So you've got the Philippines, you've got Nigeria, you've got Mexico, you've got, you know, a lot of those countries, they, they very much rely on the billions of dollars coming in from overseas from all these different places. But the thing is, when you involve like other fiat currencies in, in the transaction, you're, you're also very much relying on the, the local payment mechanisms in those countries. So, for example, like, you know, a Venmo or something's not going to be able to, to get you cash out in like rural Ghana or something like that. Right. So literally impossible to use. And, and all of these different other kind of apps that are used for domestic payments, also the same. So the question is like, who who is the one who can actually help you solve that problem for getting like cash out in Ghana? Also, the reality on the ground is the majority of countries in the world, they still use physical cash. Um, you know, they don't have the equivalent of, of these different apps. And there's various reasons for that. But yeah, often it's it's cash and, and people are comfortable with that. So it's like, okay, who can I who can I connect to who has a network in these countries? We had sort of one example we used to do remittances to Indonesia. Indonesia has like thousands of islands. And often these islands, like the only way to get money is at the post office. 
And it's not uh, economically viable for Western Union to set up on some random island in the middle of nowhere with a population of 50,000. So everyone collects money from the post office, right? So then you're, you rely on the local sort of post office money transfer network, right? And, and you have to go there and like sign a bunch of forms and it's a horrible process. I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like the, the problem to solve is the last mile problem. That's the thing. It's like the, the technical stuff of like trading a currency for another currency or an app or whatever, that's the easy part. It's like the, the hardest part is like the last mile, getting that physical money, that, that digital money somewhere to, to like a physical location. So so that, that's the problem to solve. You know, it doesn't matter what, what crypto you have or, or whatever you have. Like if you don't solve that problem, you're not going to help with, with global payments. But yeah, you're right. Like, you know, there is a lot of innovation in the US on, on the technical side. But I guess in many of these other countries around the world that don't use the US dollar, you know, they're very much focused on on the payment side because that's just a reality of you know, how money is is moved. So, yeah, like I, I think there is certainly scope to improve that. And maybe as more people like become like digital natives and they don't need the physical cash anymore or, or those local shops on that random village on that island, if you can pay in crypto, well, that's the ultimate. And and then it's like problem solved. But we're not at that level yet. I think eventually we'll get there. But uh, but yeah, not yet. From your experience, you know, people in those kinds of countries that are still operating in that cash first model and don't have all the infrastructure that other countries might have more developed out. Do you find that this is a solution? This remittance is a solution to a problem they're asking for, or is it a is it a solution that the crypto world sees as a fix to their problem? But the truth is, it's not what they want. Yeah, it's a bit of both. I guess one thing to say is a lot of these countries have better financial systems than pretty much all like G10 countries, like, you know, better than most of Europe, better than America, better than Australia and whatever. Nigeria, you can do real-time payments and you can look up an account before you actually go and send money there. So you can see if the someone screwed up the account number, you know, and it's incorrect or something before you actually send the payment. Whereas it might take me like a week or two in many sort of, you know, developed financial markets for the money to rebound. Um, so I guess like the first problem is like, Yes, there is like uh, some sort of, you know, local problems which which are to the, to be resolved yet, but there's still sort of that that focus on the sort of local distribution side, which is the real problem to solve. If you don't solve the the actual like conversions of, of fiat, that's one thing, but then the distribution, like you're not really hitting any any of those goals. So yeah, like I, I think a lot of these countries, like they're going to probably innovate in those areas first. You've got cases like the Philippines where like double digit percentage of the population are all it, they've been able to accept crypto remittances for like almost 10 years now. There's very developed sort of things around this already, but are they as impactful on the rest of the crypto market? Probably not. It's either, you know, it's never really caught traction or it's just sort of a smaller piece of the pie than say some of these other more technical crypto only things floating around. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Appreciate you breaking that down. I'd like to zoom out a little bit and talk about the macro environment. We're in another bear market. A lot of major coins are down 50%, 55%. Some of the altcoins down more. Even in the stocks, we, we've seen some crazy stock movements recently. Snapchat just dropped like 45% in a day on some earnings announcements. So we're seeing this happen you know, across all asset classes. But what keeps you excited about crypto and DeFi right now, even in this downturn environment. And it's not the first time you've seen it. And obviously you've, you've stuck around. So I'm curious what insight you can share, what mental models or like frameworks that you, helps you think about crypto going forward during times like this. Yeah, well, I guess 
as long as I've been around, the, the whole sort of ethos with crypto is it's either going to be worth zero or like a million dollars a coin. I still see that that's a that's a, a reasonable sort of position to have. And on the surface, it's, it seems like a kind of ridiculous statement, but actually it's it's quite deep because what you're saying is that if crypto doesn't succeed in all the things that it says that it's going to do, whether it's payments or, you know, NFTs or digitalizing finance and DeFi and all this kind of stuff, if it doesn't do that, well, it's never going to ever sort of be at the point where it's at parity or it's just going to fade or it, it the, the definition of not succeeding means that it's, uh, you know, it's going to sort of fade out and become irrelevant. But if it does succeed, then that does kind of mean that it's just going to be a winner takes all game and it's going to dominate the other payment forms, the other ways of, of managing finances and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's it's going to be that sort of dominant mechanism. So I would say like, on the one hand, bear markets come and go. But if your thesis is crypto is something which is valuable and useful for the world, and you believe that it's actually going to gain traction over time, well, it just it's just a matter of perspective on your time horizon of when the market's going to bounce back and realize that value. So like in it might be the case that everyone's sort of, oh, no, there's a bear market this year and, and that sort of thing or the last four months or something like that. But if you zoom out like a year or two, like, you know, Bitcoin was at 3,700 in, in March 2020. And all of the other coins that spawned from that were equally, you know, 100x lower than they are today. So it's kind of like, what what time frame do you want to use? Like, do you want to maybe look at two years from now or three years from now? You, you've got to have, I guess, a thesis on Bitcoin or not just Bitcoin, but like crypto in general. And if you think crypto is here to stay, then it kind of makes sense that, yeah, you can take a long-term horizon from it and you can go, hey, yep, bear markets come and go, but turn off the app, go for a walk, go outside, and uh, things will eventually revert. So look, I've seen that many times before. I think it becomes more complicated when you've got all of these different competing things, which may or may not have such a long time horizon, right? So if you have these protocols, which are sort of only around for a couple of years, I mean, the likelihood is that they're they're probably not going to be there a decade from now. So I think what you've got to sort of look at is look at the teams, look at the people involved, look at what are the projects trying to do? And is this a viable thing that can actually last as a, as a real business? Or is this kind of like a cash grab for, you know, the next six months and then it's going to be gone? Because you, you probably don't want to apply the same thinking of, oh, I'm going to buy this this random NFT and, and that's going to be the same as Bitcoin is going to be here a, a decade from now. It's probably not. That's just the numbers and, and how they stack up, right, in terms of market caps and users and everything else. So, like, yeah, I, I would I'd be careful with where you apply the logic. But in general, if you're bullish on crypto, like, probably don't worry about the sort of the gyrations of, of up and down markets. Yeah, no, good advice. And, you know, so you talk about finding projects that have been around for a long time. But what's what's one of the best innovations in the DeFi space you've seen over the last year? I mean, DeFi is so relatively new. Some some stuff doesn't have the, the timeline to have been around as long as Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? But what are some projects that have really st- struck you in the last year? Which ones do you see being that project that might continue for time to come? It's got to be something that's solving a real problem, right? And, and the case with DeFi, like DeFi is trying to make a decentralized financial system. So how is that different from a, like gold or a store of value or something like that? Well, a financial system means loans. It means like uh, your payroll. It means data. It means trading. It means a lot of different things, right? And there's a lot of those different apps. I think one of the interesting things, it's not really like in the last, say, year, but probably in the last two years, 
is uh, number one is lending protocols. And number two is the composability of things. So just on lending protocols, like lending protocols are, are great because you can like unlock the value of the assets which you own. In the case of 2017 and, and that sort of big run up in, in the crypto markets, people were betting on coins and they were hoping that number go up. And if number go up, then they get rich and that's it. And they hope to cash out one day. The thing was that you couldn't really like earn a yield on your coin as well. You just had to sit there and, oh, gee, I hope it goes up today. Whereas if you can earn a yield, you're, you're, you know, you're earning more coins regardless of if the price is up or down. So I think that itself is, is pretty cool. But also you could use a coin as collateral to borrow another coin to then go and put in some staking protocol somewhere and earn some interest on that as well. So it kind of, it just gives you a lot more options. In, in 2020, I was uh, borrowing for my expenses that I had to pay for like rent and food. And I was getting paid to borrow that. So I was getting paid like 14% or something to borrow like USDC on this DeFi lending platform. And with that, I was like buying like McDonald's or like paying my rent or something like that. So whenever I bought a Big Mac, it had an ROI on it. And I could like, yeah, if, if I didn't have, if I didn't have that, I spent $10 and the money's gone. Whereas at least, you know, I have a 14% ROI on my $10 spending. Um, so I think things like that are pretty cool. I think another one is a lot of the composability of these platforms. So composability is, uh, it's being able to like have one token and then put it somewhere else to do something. So, you know, in the, the example I just gave with the lending, I could have maybe a coin that's earning me some interest in some lending protocol, but then I could also use that coin in that protocol to stake somewhere else at the same time. So then I could like double dip and I could get like double the bonus, right? Or then maybe I take it from there somewhere else and earn like triple dip. Uh, in terms of like new yield or something like that. So I think composability is is certainly a, a key thing. So yeah, you know, I, I think that's what DeFi is all about and why it's different to existing like fintech apps is this composability and being able to like reuse these different coins in like five different ways. Whereas if I take a loan on a fintech app, like that's all I can do. But if I take a loan on a DeFi app, I can like get the money, then I can put it over here, I can stake it, and I can put it in an LP and I'll put somewhere else, and I can earn some yield on that, and then I can like use it as collateral on something else somewhere else. So it's like I, I can have like four different layers when I just do the one action. That's a breakthrough, and that's super cool. Thinking about the user experience of that, I mean, it's very complex to once you start getting into the composable nature of some of these tokens and the things you just described, I mean, you, you can be like layers deep with from token to token, from staking to staking and all the different platforms. And I know that's a reason why, one of the reasons why you, you created Step Finance, and we're going to get into that a little bit. Is that user experience a, a feature of DeFi or do you think it's a problem that's still to be solved? Like, it, it, should it be that complex as you're trying to build this financial system? Or do you think as we o do over time, we're going to find DeFi become a little bit more approachable to the masses? I mean, it's a good point. Is it a feature or a bug? It's incumbent on these different apps to make it easy for people. And the easier that you can make it, the better. So like it, it's fundamentally, I think, always going to be a complex thing to do. And maybe that's OK. And, and that's probably not going to change. But I think being able to get access to these different things is the main the main sort of solution to solve. So, for example, if there is an app which is doing like this five layered crazy thing over here, but then it says, hey, just deposit some USDC and then you can like get into this five layer deep thing. 
well, then that makes it a whole lot easier, right? And it's it's really the app which is doing all the hard work for you and the heavy lifting. And, and you don't have to know like all the different stuff involved. It's probably good if you do, but um, you don't have to go and do it, right? So I think, yeah, making it more approachable in that way is, is definitely the way forward. And it, it's probably a problem which it's always going to be complex, but we can always just make that complexity easier and better UX and so on. I mean, I could ask you about DeFi and tokens all pod long, and I may come back to a couple more token-specific questions, but talking about this complexity, let's let's jump in and talk about step finance. I think that that's a good transition here is, you know, what is step finance? I'd like you to cover the overview because it's the project you're working on right now and, and why it's needed. So it seems like from my, from my understanding of step, like it really starts to address some of that user experience of tracking your tokens. You get into this place where you have, you're using all these different protocols and you're staking in different ways. It's hard to track your money. And that's, that's not a good system, right? And I feel like Step is helping address some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, like, I guess to to sort of say to the point of of this complexity, there are lots of different lending protocols and yield farms and AMMs and you know NFT platforms and all of this different stuff. And there, there's hundreds of these things out there on multiple chains as well. And it's kind of unviable that like, it, to how do I track all of that? Like, how do I know? how much money I have at any one point in time. And that's been like certainly last year in, in Solana land when that was still being built out, that, that was the case. Like you didn't know, you had all of these different, like different tabs up, you had like 10 tabs on your browser. All of them would say a different number and it's like you have no sort of idea of, of what's really going on. So, so Step's main role is to be that one place where you've got all of your different protocols, all your different integrations and so on. And it's all, it just tells you, you know, what, what's happening with your portfolio and your portfolio could be NFTs. It could be staking. It could be yield farms. It could be like claiming rewards from a lending farm. It could be all of this crazy stuff. It could be even getting transaction information for like, we have a lot of people asking about like, oh, tax season, right? And they need to know like all of the history of their wallet. And if you look at anyone's wallet, it's just a total mess, <laughs> at least uh, if you go and look at it on a block explorer, like how you trying to remember what you did three months ago, it's pretty hard. So so Step's job is to, to uh, make all of that a lot easier for end users and just put everything in one place. So that's how we started. Uh, we have the most integrations on Solana for all of this. So pretty much every protocol out there on Solana we, we integrate with and the question often comes up of like multi-chain and like I, I love other chains, I, I experiment uh, in a lot of different places, obviously sort of learning DeFi on Ethereum land and, and that sort of thing. For us, there's so much happening on Solana right now that we can't keep up. And if we were to try and learn like another three different blockchains, I could have to hire another 50 people. So it's it's kind of unviable for us to scale that way. So we just want to be really good at what we do in, in our particular vertical. So, um, so Step is focused on just the Solana DeFi ecosystem and you're aggregating all all of one's positions from just Solana, it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to look at your DeFi on Solana and your DeFi on, you know, Ethereum and your DeFi on like Mir or something like that. Correct. Yeah. So just Solana and basically everything that happens on chain uh, on there. So why, yeah. why are you betting on Solana being the chain that is of focus? Solana's had tons of uh, adoption over the last year. The NFT world has really embraced Solana in the last couple months with some major projects. And we we just spoke with the COO of Magic Eden on, on the pod. So they're getting a lot of great growth. But yeah, very curious on why Solana is your focus. 
Yeah, well, an example of Magic Eden, like Magic Eden, I think, is now bigger in terms of users, volume and everything than OpenSea. So OpenSea is like number two. Magic Eden's done a really good job of that. And like, why are people gravitating to to Solana and Magic Eden and, and whatever it might be? I think there's a couple of reasons. Like, number one, a lot of the people that, that come into the DeFi world and the NFT world, like this is their first experience with crypto. And maybe they like, haven't used other stuff. So firstly, like you have a lot of new users coming in that have no reference. You could tell a lot of people, and we see that with, with people that come to Step, you could tell them that, hey, Ethereum's like been around for a lot longer and it has like a pedigree and like a lot of the apps started there and so on. But I mean, they don't care because at the end of the day, if they go onto Ethereum, you know, they have to pay like 40 bucks to do a transaction, whereas Solana, it's like two cents. So like, why would you make this, the switch? Like, I get the historical argument, but people are also practical, right? So I think the the, the speed and the low transaction fees is one thing, but a lot of blockchains say that, right? And that's been that's been sort of the talking point for a lot of people and a lot of different chains. Oh, we're, we're quicker and we're cheap, but it's also liquidity and it's also like uh, ecosystem as well. And I think that's one thing which Solana's done really well is there's like five different apps doing the same thing for everything. You know, so in the case of DeFi, like all the different things we spoke about before, like there's different five different apps doing all of those. Yeah, you know, that, that's a big ecosystem. And all of those apps are like trying to attract users in different ways and incentives and blah, blah, blah. So like I, I think Solana's done a good job on that. Maybe other sort of chains haven't or, or they have maybe in the case of, let's say, like Terra recently before before everything sort of went downhill there uh, with UST, like Terra really had one major dap, which was Anchor. That was the one where, eight, you know, how many billion was in there. It might have been 40 billion. Yeah, some crazy number, right? Like, but, but most of that was concentrated in like one app. So, you know, that would be an example of an ecosystem that sure, like it exists and it, it's grown, but it's nowhere near as developed as say Solana. So like, that's why I'm, I'm really excited about Solana. Like it's got this, this depth of ecosystem now and all of these different communities and, and apps running on it, that it's, it's got that critical mass. And it's no longer like just trying to survive and being like, hey, we have like this one random thing which which people care about. It's like, no, no, we have like 10 of them, like take a choice. And I think there's a lot of reasons like if it's devs, you know, there's a lot of devs starting, there's a lot of resources on, on learning how to, to get started, stuff like that. You know, maybe that's a contributing factor. Totally. Developer activity is definitely a precursor for blockchain adoption. And what is it? Electric Capital puts out a really good developer report. I don't remember if their last one covered Solana developer activity, but it definitely covered Ethereum. I'm sure the next iteration will cover Solana's activity. Now, another question on the Solana like blockchain before I want to circle back to some step related questions around data is... How do you think through the argument that Solana is a centralized blockchain versus something like Ethereum? I mean, someone who's been around it, and you talk about in those early days, you were talking about the core concepts of crypto, right? Like decentralization and being able to control your own money, right? And some people feel like Solana loses against Ethereum in that centralization argument. I think part of that's maybe partially because it's got funding, like the way it started, it got funding from venture capital, right? But I'm not too knowledgeable enough to speak through that, those, those specifics. How do, how do you think through that? Yeah, well, I think firstly, like people say things, but they often don't know what the words that they're saying means. Like what, is, what does decentralization mean, right? And there's like a couple different ways that you could look at what decentralization sort of actually means. Uh, I guess in the case of, say, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has a lot of different individual miners, but there are sort of mining pools where these miners like pull together their hash rate. So it, I guess when we're talking about decentralization, it's like how many people need to collude to 
do something bad and take over the blockchain or, you know, change the block order or, or stuff like that. That's, I think, really what people are getting to when they talk about decentralization. So, okay, cool. The metric to look at is like how many people need to collude. There's actually a technical word for this. I think it's like the Nakamoto coefficient. If you Google that, like, you know, people listening can, can go and like uh, read up on what that is. But essentially, it's exactly that. It's how many people need to collude. In the case of, say, Ethereum, like Ethereum, 51% of the hash rate right now is I think like four different mining pools, something like that. So if you if four people colluded, you could you know double spend blocks on Ethereum and it goes to zero at that point. And when you say that, it's like it's like Lido and some of those major staking pools, right? That's what you mean. Like it would take four kind of groups like that to collude. Well, so Ethereum's not yet on staking. It's still using you know mining and proof of work. So on the case of the proof of work stuff, that's really the mining pools themselves, which is not Lido. I don't I don't know if Lido have their pool, but you know it's it's a different proof of work pools for that. So, but the argument against that is people will say, ah, the members of these pools are able to direct their hash rate wherever they want to, and uh, you know they could just you know if they see someone that's getting you know, close to 50% of the market, you know, they could just switch their miner to some other pool. Firstly, these pools are generally like massive factories. So they own the physical hardware. They have, you know, the actual compute power themselves. It's not like a bunch of random dudes like 10 years ago that had like one graphics card in their basement and was, uh, you know, actually mining. So it's like, these are like factory styles. So really it's like one entity that can actually control that, that hash rate. So, you know, that, that's one thing to consider is now Ethereum is going to switch to proof of stake. That's like a whole sort of different concept. Again, it's like, I guess, uh, you know, there's the proof of stake versus proof of work argument, what's more decentralized. But I guess getting back to the original point of Solana, Solana has something like 1800 validators at the moment, something like that. The Nakamoto co- coefficient is something like uh, 25 or, or, and to put that in perspective, like I think Bitcoin is has a Nakamoto coefficient of something like, I don't know, a thousand or something like that. Solana's at 25, Ethereum's at like 20 or something. These other blockchains are at, you know, whatever numbers sort of less than 20. In Solana land, like there isn't someone that can just press a switch and like make it go back off and on again. Like literally it doesn't work. Like you have to, and like I'm in validator chat. Anyone is like, you can go and join the discord. Like you see these validators talking to each other about like, how do we make the network better and so on. Right. So I would say that, yeah, like Solana is, is very decentralized. It is in some cases, I would say it's more decentralized than, than other competing blockchains. It requires a lot of different people to, to be involved, to like do anything to, to change the network and like update nodes or whatever it might be. Probably going to continue over time. And Solana has like a different validation mechanism, how that competes with proof of work over time or proof of stake, like up for discussion as like a very sort of lengthy debate on like these different validation mechanisms. But yeah, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that not many people can actually collude. Like, I don't really think that that's much of a risk for a lot of the top blockchains, really. Yeah, no, I appreciate that explanation. It, really insightful. It gives me in, just kind of a lens into how you think through that and helps answer some of the concerns that I feel like I'd seen on Twitter. I mean, I don't I don't think I subscribe to the, oh, Solana's a centralized blockchain argument, but I, it's something I see, and I don't see a lot of real breakdowns on, you know, what, what people are saying behind that and why it might not be true. So what you just described makes a lot of sense. Many times on Twitter, you know, when people have said that, I've been like, oh, cool, which of the 1700 validators has the off switch? Like, <laughs> let, let me know and I'll like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tag them and be like, dude, why are you, why are you turning it off? <laughs> I, I like that. Clap back at them. There's, there's so much stuff on Twitter that you got to decide what, 
what which battles you pick and which ones you don't. It definitely is good to be able to respond to a couple people. So now I do want to come back and I want to talk about data before we wrap up and go into our one two web three section of the pod and. That is, I think that what you're doing at Step is really interesting, gathering gathering data to provide all these different views. I mean, so many times people talk about how the blockchain is this open, anybody can check type of playing field, right? But that requires a lot of technical expertise. You mentioned Block Explorer. How hard is it to dive through that or Etherscan and really get an understanding of what these transactions mean? And so I think that some of the work you're doing is is making these transactions human readable, right? In in certain ways. So how do you think through the different layers of data on the blockchain? And what are you trying to bubble up in, in step finance? And what does that new new visualization of the data give you a view from a view of? How does it help you? So we recently had a really sort of interesting Q1 discussion internally. And it was kind of like where what's the direction that we want to go in for the rest of this year? It comes down to like to be a, a viable protocol and, um, you know, something which can earn revenue, essentially, like we need to be able to provide a service that people are willing to pay for. And in in the DeFi world, it's like, okay, make people doing DeFi stuff, make their life easier. Like maybe it's one click compounding of yield farms, or maybe it's, I don't know, like uh, you can settle orders from the decks, you know, via step and you can, where we take a cut of that, or it might be people aping into some random vault somewhere and we take a cut of that. You know, we, we could go down the path of like adding these different things, but certainly in a bear market, like there's less activity, there's less TVL, there's le- less of, you know, all of this action. And I don't think it's, it's not a, a business model, which is really sort of our, our, our core, you know, really at the core of our product. So when we're saying like, okay, what's the core of our product? We have all of these different integrations. We show people data across all of these different weird things. The, the thing is that that is actually our moat. You know, that is actually the thing which is highly valuable that we never really sort of looked at before as, as something that we could we could tap into. But so so we're thinking, okay, all of these integrations, like we have data on what's the APY of some random sort of yield farm or how many people own this LP or like how is this, you know, token performed against other ones, you know, in the same time period. Or like Magic Eden, like, you know, what are what are apes, you know, you know, wailing into at the moment? Like, you know, what are the addresses which are know, prolific in this and how much have they transferred? You know, there's a lot of different cool data, which, which we can actually extract from what we already do. It's just about, we've got to be able to index it and serve it to people in a way which, which makes sense. So sort of really how we see the future of step going forward is capturing all of that in easy to use either data dashboards or APIs that we make available to people. And, and that's sort of where I think I see the future of us going. Like people might be familiar with say June analytics or Nansen or, Glassnode, some of these different data-focused products that, uh, you know, they are telling you stuff about what's happening on the blockchain and that's their core competency. But I guess where Step is a little bit different to what they're doing is they're telling you about like the blockchain sort of, you know, high-level stuff, whereas Step is telling you about, you know, some weird protocol over here that has a, a lending pool that, you know, does X. Nansen doesn't have those integrations, neither does, you know, many other people. So really that's where that's where we sort of shine and, and that's where we want to be able to provide that, either in data dashboards and, and monetize that. We have as well like uh, accounting companies coming to us and they're like, hey, our clients are flipping NFTs and doing crazy DeFi stuff. We need to know for their tax, like, you know, what's happening. Can we, like, is there a way for us to plug into your data and our customer can like give their address and then you can just tell us like all of this crazy stuff that's going on. 
because they're not going to go and build like 50 integrations with Solana. They're an accounting company. They just want to like get the data somewhere. So that that's really sort of where we see ourselves as like being able to 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 make human readable, like you said, you know, all of this crazy stuff. There, there's so much to be learned about almost like all these different Web2 companies, Netflix, Amazon, Google, they, they know so much about the user. And there's one side of it where there's this argument, especially in Web3, on how they misuse our data. But on the flip side, they also do a lot of things to make our internet experiences better, recommending the next show we might want to watch or, you know, connecting us to a friend in our network, right? And I think that there's a lot of really interesting ways that some of this data is going to, on the blockchain, can bubble up insights for, right now it's really geared towards traders, right? And collectors and people in the DeFi space. But as we even get beyond that, I'm just super curious to see how that data insight gives us, I don't know, the ability to make decisions around other things that aren't just trading. But being able to watch what smart money is doing and also being able to get insight into like taxes, super valuable. So I've used Nansen myself for really for like NFT trades to try to get an idea of who are the best traders? What are they doing right now? And that gives me like a little bit of, you know, a data point to make a decision. And so the more data points that we can provide everyday people to make smarter decisions, I think it's just better. So, and now we get to do it in, in an unsiloed, massive open database. You just have to have the technical chops or you have to know which uh, dApps to use to get that insight, right? Yeah, like I, I think the difference between say a Netflix, which you know might have custody of your data and they might do a bunch of stuff. But the cool thing with, with Web3 is like, we're just showing you information, which is already public. Like it's all on the blockchain. Like everyone can read it. It's just trying to make sense of it. So, uh, so that's, I think, the cool position that, that we see ourselves in is like, we're not like a, a custodian of your data or anything. It's like, we're just like showing you everything that's already public. It's already out there. Uh, we're just like displaying it in a, in a way that, that people can comprehend and, and understand better. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, George, thank you so much for walking us through D5, Step, Remittance. I found it really interesting. And I, I want to ask you some questions that I ask every guest on the pod. We call it one, two, web three. So are you ready for that? Let's go to it. Yep. All right. Who is a influential web three creator, entrepreneur, collector that's inspired or educated you? Super curious about this one, especially given you have maybe the longest time horizon of people that may have impacted you that from anyone I've asked on the pod. I really like what Eric Voorhees has done over the years. And for those who are not, not familiar, like Eric was one of the, the first entrepreneurs in, in crypto. And he had a, a website called Satoshi Dice, which I think was like the first exit ever in, in crypto as well for, for a company. And, and he runs, uh, what is it, Shapeshift now? I think what Eric has done over the years is, is really admirable and he's always been involved. And yeah, you know, give him a follow on Twitter. I think someone like that that's, that's stood the test of time and has like delivered real stuff. That, that's that's who someone that I really like and look up to. Yeah. And second question is, what's your favorite NFT? And I'll open this up to potentially even a, a DeFi token, since that's your your realm too. If you want to do that one instead. <laughs> okay. Um, favorite NFT or DeFi token? Well, other than say Step, um, we we have some like cool uh, Step themed NFTs as well. But I think barring that, some of the early Solana. NFTs were pretty cool. Like I, I think there was one called like Salamas, which was like, you know, Solamanders as well. There was another one. Uh, and then like Llamas as well. 
there was weirdness about how they launched, but uh, they're pretty pretty interesting. Like people that have been around in Solana maybe know those. I think on the DeFi side, there's so many. Maybe Serum is 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 interesting because they've just been around the longest in in Solana, and yeah, on Ethereum land probably Aave. Yeah. Hmm. I I've heard of Serum. Don't know enough about it, but now that you mention it, that's a a green flag for me. That's like a, I I must go do my own deep dive on it. So. Something I said I've said before on the pod is anytime someone really smart in crypto mentions something that I've heard of, but I really don't know anything about yet, that kind of triggers my okay, shoot, go research that. So I'll, I'll check it out. And I've only done a little bit of kind of swapping and a little bit of staking on Ave too. I staked some ETH there before, but still another another chain I need to do more deep dives in. And third question is, in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse or in, or in crypto that we're just not talking about yet? So websites themselves are kind of like 2D flat things that we look at through, through screens. And I think a lot of people are maybe thinking about ways that you can make websites in general like more interactive or maybe more linked to the metaverse. So I don't know, like a lot of people are trying to say, oh, you're going to go shopping and you're going to put on VR goggles and you're going to go walk through like shopping aisles. I don't think it's going to be that. Like I particularly, I probably don't want to do that. I'd probably much rather use like Amazon and click on stuff and that sort of thing. But I think that there's there's got to be some way that, that people are thinking about this of like bringing that 2D world of like interacting with a website into something that's uh, better. And it might just be as simple as, Username and passwords are eliminated and we just use our Web3 wallet. Like, I think that would be really cool. If I just had my Web3 wallet, I can connect it to Amazon, I can connect it to Google, I can connect it to Netflix, and then all of my dApps, like, that would just be so much better. I would have a much better life if that was the case. I didn't have to worry about passwords and these sorts of things. I think, yeah, like, that would be the coolest thing. Well, I'm happy to tell you that on Unstoppable Domains, we are thinking through that kind of journey. But I'll say like, we, we really think that NFT domains are going to be more so that connection point versus wallets because of the, the data connections and associations you can make with it. So uh, everyone who's interested in more of that, definitely check out one of the uh, Matthew Gould podcasts we have on Unstoppable. Matt and I dive into like NFT domains and identity all the time. And George, we'll have to, we'll have to talk offline about that more. Well, sweet. Appreciate all those answers. And can you let us know where we can find you, connect with you on the internet after everyone listens to this pod? Probably Twitter's a good place. I'm uh, George underscore Harrop on Twitter or Step Finance. If you just Google us, step.finance or or just uh, Step Finance on, on Twitter, come check it out. Check us out, like join the Discord, join the community. Always happy to, to see new people. Great. Well, thanks so much, George. This was a great conversation. I I want to have a follow-up one in another 11 years once you've been in crypto for 22 years. All right. So we keep that going. Hopefully we'll all still be around then, right? I'll be an old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in crypto years, you'll definitely be the grandfather by then. But thanks everyone for listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. We drop episodes every single Wednesday. Please be sure to follow along, subscribe. If you're listening on, on YouTube, throw us a like and we'll see you every Wednesday. We'll see you in the metaverse. Peace out. See you later, guys. hope you've enjoyed this episode of the unstoppable podcast if something we said today resonated with you please leave us a review subscribe and share this with your friends and remember this conversation doesn't have to end here tweet us your questions thoughts and ideas to unstoppable web i look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening